So I'm recording this uh, towards the end of June in 2022. And uh, those of you who have been waiting for this episode, been pestering me about it, uh, know full well that it should have been sooner. But it's June 2022, and I haven't watched much of it, but uh, various you know, social media messaging feeds and so forth, for me right now, are peppered with images of Glastonbury Festival. There's a lot of images of these these surging carnivalesque kind of colourful crowds of people, often all kind of powerfully focused in one direction, casting their voices and their bodies uh, towards their their musical idols. You know, they're, to move into the language of this series, their great warlords, their druidic high priests, their generals, roaring, proclaiming, making speeches. And it's a very powerful... Uh, and seemingly, I think, fundamental sort of human situation, you know, a place to find ourselves. And I'm, I was struck by the number, actually. That's why, I, that's why I'm, I'm talking about this now. The number is about 200,000 people currently at Glastonbury Festival in total. And that's very similar to some of the numbers that are going to pop up in this episode. Now, I'm not, I'm not here to make any grim comparisons about crowds at music festivals and what, what, you know, what they're there for and what they actually want out of it. You know, luckily, all of those people, I think, are having hopefully a really nice time. But they are engaged in a similar level of collective intensity. And I find that a, an interesting window with that raised state of being. I think those, you know, those bared teeth grinning, arms raised, bouncing figures are are really seemingly, I think, in a state only a few degrees removed from the bare teeth, snarl, weapons raised, masses of humans from 2,000 years ago that we're going to be talking about. The way these crowds behave is complex and it's, it's much studied by sociologists and economists and all sorts of people. But I think the ancients had their own way of understanding these dynamics. You know, perhaps an understanding born from experience. The Greek uh, slash Roman god of war is Ares or Mars. And and Ares and Mars and war in military, it's martial, it's serious and profound. But Mars's children were the brothers uh, Deimos and Phobos, or Phobos. And I think more accurately, they are perhaps the gods of battle. Deimos, dread, the terror, the, the anticipation of events to come. And Phobos, fear, the horror, the, the panic in the chaos of the melee. The festival glowers of, of Glastonbury, I think, understand it in, in a much nicer way. But crowds are not governed by Ares, by profound, serious thought of great martial endeavours. Crowds are ruled by much more fundamental, much more elemental and animal feelings. In this episode, we're going to be looking at a few military engagements uh, and a few chaotic sackings and, and slaughters as well. And these experiences are so alien to us, I think, and almost impossible to imagine for that reason. But I get these occasional uncanny moments with these, you know, the, these totally foreign ancient experiences seem to slightly blur into the very real modern world of, you know, BBC iPlayer reporting of Glastonbury. Welcome back, valued listener, to Season 2, Episode 2 of Pedestals, The First Britannia. 
So, Boudicca. Or Bodicea. Boudicca. Sometimes Bodicea. It's a made up matter. I pronounce it Boudicca. 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 I always thought it was Bodicea. Boudicca. Boudicca. Bodicea. Boudicca. Who knows? I choose Boudicca. Boudicca. That sounds a bit like a joke. Boudicca was a Roman. English. A Scottish. She was Queen of the Iceni. In early Britain. I'm not even sure who the Britons were. She was a top Essex girl. And I since found out that I don't even think she was Scottish. Chariots. A lady in a chariot. Big chariot. Which, as we all know, had knives fastened to the wheels. She had red hair. Crazy hair. Long red hair. Tangled up with Britannia. A plus-sized lady. <laughs> with a Union Jack shield. She was like the first female war lady. Combined all the tribes. She united them against somebody. The Romans. I feel like if she'd won, we'd know more. Maybe if she was a man with no more, but hey. I think she killed her kids. Think she was the first ever feminist. I hope she was a feminist. The talk about Christina Rossetti, Jane Austen, Jane Eyre for that matter, Queen Boudicca was the original proto-feminist. Welcome back once again, valued listener. Thank you so much again for tuning in. Uh, and for sticking with this series despite the slight gap in production. Uh, as I've said before, I'm, I'm kind of working out how it's going to work, uh, and this is just how long it seems to take me. Sometimes it'll take me less time, sometimes it'll take me more. Um, but until I can work out something more structured than that, we're just going to have to leave it at that. And I'm not going to talk about it much more because I know it's kind of boring to listen to my excuses. Um, but I did want to say I, I, I introduced this idea at the end of the last episode, I think, and possibly at the end of, of the first season as well. Um, for anyone who does want to support me or is supporting me on, on Patreon, um, I'll provide a link in the episode description at the end of the episode. Um, but just in case, because I know not everyone listens right to the end of all, all of the episodes, which is fair enough, we've all got things to do. Um, but I just wanted to reiterate, if you are supporting me on Patreon, please do feel free just to make it a one-time payment and to not subscribe as a regular giver because you know as we can tell I'm not releasing on a super regular schedule and I don't want to you know to, to let people down who feel like they've signed up for something super regular um, I understand you can just make a, a, a pledge on Patreon uh, for however much you feel what you've listened to is worth and then you can just cancel your cancel your subscription as it were and uh, and that will essentially make it a one-off payment um, and then if you feel you want to make another payment in the future you can do the same for now I think that's going to be the, the best way um, to to show your support um, so thank you for those who already have done so um, and as I say there'll be a link for anybody who would like to do so in the future just a brief note before we start this episode does include various descriptions of violence uh, and references to some sexual violence as well i've tried not to be gratuitous but thought it's always best to give a warning enjoy i left you last time with with the image finally of Boudicca rallying the iceni and the trinovantes tribes uh, in this great crowd of uh, well according to our sources 100,000 120,000 Britons, furious at the Roman government, at the way that she had been treated and the way that they had been treated more broadly. Now, I'd like you to cast your minds way back, I think to about halfway through the first episode, to the character of our governor, the imperial governor in Rome, Paulinus, Suetonius Paulinus. Paulinus is the military governor, so he is the highest military official, highest representative of the empire in the province. And we left him way up in North Wales, and we're going to go back to him now. 
So we left Paulinus. He, he's been he's been chasing up the British resistance after Caraticus's resistance, after that initial British resistance after Claudius' invasion had been stamped down. Paulinus turns up in I believe fifty eight A.D. and he spent two campaign seasons and now he's on his third, hacking his way through Wales, north and west, from his base of control in the southeast of England, clearing out this last vestige of resistance. And Wales is an obvious place to be rather difficult in this respect. It's dense, it's hilly, it's streamy, it's brackeny, brambly, and particularly the, the, the north of Wales still is. And it would have been more so then. It would have been more forested. It would have been, you know, fewer, any roads would have just been probably single tracks. But he's been hacking his way through this, this countryside and through these people for, for a couple of years. And he's finally arrived at what's called the Menai Straits. The Menai Straits is worth going on Google Maps and just Googling Anglesey or the Menai Straits, M-E-N-A-I. Anglesey is this island on the northwest coast of, of Wales. It's a very, just barely an island, but it is an island. And it's separated from the mainland by the Menai Straits. It's a, it's a big island. And it's significant for a few reasons. It's the furthest northwest point, really, in Wales. It's comparatively flat and, and fertile. And he's driven all of these refugees before him. The tribes that have been resisting, those, those most stolid freedom fighters, have fled further northwest, further northwest, until they are now all gathered up on this island. So it's, it's, it's now in a land that is very thinly populated, teeming now with freedom-inclined Britons. And finally, the final reason for significance, it is, it is the spiritual centre of Druidism. It's a place supposedly where Druids came to learn sacred knowledge from all over the, the Celtic world, and also where their ancient sacred groves are. They're, they're essentially their, their churches, their cathedrals, these stands of ancient trees. And Paulinus is there to, to attack Mona, to attack well, sorry, Mona is what it's called by the... Mona is what the, the, the Romans call it. Anglesey is what we call it nowadays. And he's there to attack Mona to, to, to quash this last vestige of British resistance, but also to put an end to the world of the Druids once and for all. And that's because the Druids form this, this social class, this religious, this, this uh, political class that runs separate to the disparate tribal intertribal warring, the, the rivalries that have kept the Celtic world separate, fragmented, and that the Romans, you know, particularly Julius Caesar, but the Romans since then have seen them as a potential uniting force, catalysts for, for rebellion in the face of Roman oppression. These sorcerers, scientists, um, elders of the Celtic world. And again, we get this sense of, of another world, you know, kind of like one of those, you know, the Lost World movies like that, that that we have to imagine Paulinus having... He's already on an island that is considered the end of the world. In fact, beyond the edge of the world, beyond Oceanus, beyond beyond the natural walls of the, of the Roman Empire. And he's fought through the, the rugged terrain of northwest Wales, again, as I think Procopius claims beyond this wall that runs the middle of the island that beyond which is full of poison gases and snakes and giants and you will drop dead for no apparent reason and men have their you know their heads in their bellies and you know three legs and whatever 
and he's fought through this rugged terrain and suddenly he arrives to set the scene. I mean, again, as I said, look up the Menai Straits at this sort of this sort of moat to this bizarre island. Northwest Wales is, is very rugged and mountainous, as I've been uh, labouring. Anglesey is actually really quite flat in comparison and very fertile and very green and a kind of little Eden out of place. And there's a the Menai Straits are about 400 metres wide at their thinnest. And you can imagine turning up at this sort of weird moat, this weird, almost like a river, but a river full with tidal eddies and they, there's conflicting tides at either ends of the Menai Straits, full of, of whirlpools and great boiling currents, across from which is this seeming Eden that you spent two years fighting towards. And on the edge of that Eden, there are these terrifying, well, supposedly white-robed, if we're going to take the party line here, these white-robed, great-bearded sorcerers screaming and cursing and calling down hexes upon you, backed by their wild Amazonian women warriors and blue painted men with spiky hair. This is Tacitus' account of, of, of the standoff at the Menai Straits. Quote, On the beach stood the adverse array, a serried mass of arms and men, with women flitting between the ranks. In the style of the Furies, in robes of deathly black and with dishevelled hair, they brandished their torches, while a circle of druids, lifting their hands to heaven and showering imprecations, struck the troops with such an awe at the extraordinary spectacle that as though their limbs were paralysed, they exposed their bodies to wounds without an attempt at movement. Then, reassured by their general, and inciting each other never to flinch before a band of females and fanatics, they charged behind the standards, cut down all who met them, and enveloped the enemy in his own flames. End quote. So as you can tell by that, you know, there is this, this deep sense of fear. As I said, this characterization of the Britons as, as other and exotic and terrifying and alien and sort of subhuman, barbaric, all of those things... But we can also see from that there is this, well, it's rather a vindication of that fear that the legionaries, the, these legionaries who wouldn't even embark their troop transports the first time they were told to in order to invade this island. This is a vindication of that idea that you turn up and there's this terrifying sight and you think we never should have come. So that's, I mean, I guess it's a reversal of why these, these images get created. There's a necessity to, as it says, inciting each other never to flinch before a band of females and fanatics. It's like they have to degrade and debase these people in order to, to be brave enough to, to, to squash down their fear and to go and, and engage them. And, and Paulinus as well, it seems to say, sort of reassures them and gets them to charge across. Uh, we hear his, his famous uh, Batavian cavalry sort of amphibious force uh, swim across, which seems incredibly unlikely because this is quite a terrifying body of water. They swim across and they make a, a bridge of boats and they get across and they, and they slaughter everyone, cut down all who met them and envelop the enemy in his own flames. So, well, it gives us certainly an impression of Paulinus as a seriously impressive guy, ruthless. You know, this is horrible Roman uh, establishment of Roman rule at its worst. But he is a guy who gets stuff done. As I said, he'd he'd been a he'd previously served in Mauritania, which which similarly he he um he crossed the Atlas Mountains, was supposedly the first Roman to get a uh, a, a sizable force over the Atlas Mountains and to to kind of 
beat through that rugged terrain. So this is very much his his playbook. But he gets them across the Menai Straits. This wholesale slaughter of the, the final vestiges of resistance, or so he thinks. And importantly, the destruction of the sacred groves, these ancient stands of trees, destroying really the, the physical physical infrastructure of Druidism. And again, with this story, we get the, 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 the sense that there's a, the very stuff of the land, you know, of, of Britannia, the place being destroyed, the native spirit of Britain under attack by these, these foreign invaders. In any case, that's where Paulinus is, about 300 miles away, when he receives word of what has broken out in East Anglia. So we left Boudicca having roused up her tribe, the Iceni, in, in revolt with the Trinovantes, this neighbouring, actually slightly larger tribe. Um, the first mention we have of the Iceni is, is probably what Caesar calls the Cheni Magni, which in Latin is the, the Great Iceni. And it's just a reminder that we have this this whole this soup of names uh, in a pre-literate society. For example, Prasetagus, the the last king, Boudicca's Boudicca's husband, possibly actually just means king or ruler. Um, Esoprastus is a, a, a slightly previous king, or is perhaps the same person. Uh, we see his name on some coins. Equally, that might just be a title. Uh, so you know, maybe Boudicca is now the Prasetagus. Really hard to say. It's also a reminder that the language that we are using when we're talking about these colonised peoples is itself an assertion of the colonizers' power. It's their language that we're using. But the Iceni, or the, the, the Cheni Magni, we need to remind ourselves, are Britons, but are not. it's not part of a broader collective. They are simply one tribe, one peoples. And the rest of the country and the rest of the Celtic world is populated by, by these small tribes, these petty kingdoms, often far more opposed to one another than they are to the Romans. And this, uh, this perhaps suggests to me, just as a side note, I know this is a side note on a side note, but that we're, we're, by giving the proximate causes of the revolt, so Boudicca's dispossession and her beating and, her, her, and the rape of her daughters, that we, by giving them so much weight, we're kind of following Tacitus's uh, or the Roman narrative, because that seems to suggest that something special has to happen in order for colonial uprisings to take place, in order for these locals to go, this is too much, this is awful. Um, but the fact that the Trinovantes also rise up, I think is suggestive. As I've said, these two these two tribes who would otherwise probably be at each other's, other's throats, that the broader conditions of Roman rule are bad enough that the Trinovantes also have to get involved. And that it seems other tribes, because of the growth that happens to Boudicca's army, as we'll see, as she's moving through lands that don't belong to either of those tribes, again, suggests that everyone is really pissed off at, at, at Roman rule and that these proximate causes may be narrative flourishes from Tacitus or, or, or they happened, but they're given extra weighting. So anyway, Boudicca is the head of, of this horde, possibly 100,000 angry Britons. Um, again, we do need to qualify these numbers. The Romans have this habit, uh, you know, their history is literature and 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 it all serves a purpose. They, they have a habit of making their own armies sound small, making enemy armies sound huge, because that then makes the, the eventual victory all the greater, all the more glorious and, and a, a greater vindication and, and proof of the supremacy of, of Rome and the Roman system. But that said, we're kind of going to stick with the numbers they give us. These numbers are actually probably less magnified than we might think. You know, we quite often get Xerxes crossing the Hellespont with like three million people and that's that's probably wrong by a factor of at least 10 um, if not more 
this is probably exaggerated by a little bit, by by 20% or something, by 30%. But in any case, she has 100,000 angry Britons all riled up. We don't really know where she was. We don't really know where she started off. Um, Again, the the Iceni were possibly a kind of more conservative, a more traditional British tribe, less influenced by the Roman ways and kind of less centralised, it seems likely. You know, if if what Romanisation brings is these urban centres of living, these opida or these civitates eventually, the Iceni don't appear to have had a clear one of those. There are a few archaeological sites, some are called Chatteris, uh, Caestus and Edmonds, some are called Saham Tony, uh, most famously Thetford, which has been dubbed Boudicca's Palace. Um, it's a, a really interesting structure. It's this very large, essentially a roundhouse, which is what uh, kind of Iron Age Britons lived in. Then with these nine concentric wooden walls around it, only only spaced by a few yards. So it's not like a, a practical defensible structure. Uh, it may have been sacred, political residential it may have been a palace it may have been a temple it's kind of hard to say but in any case we assume that one of these sites um, is where Boudicca was and it's about 40 or 50 miles away from Camulodunum and we're going to talk about what Camulodunum is in a minute but but it's about two to four days walk away depending on how serious you are about walking so where was Camulodunum? Camulodunum is what's now Colchester it had already pre- pre-Roman invasion, um, been a kind of focus of, of British population. Quite possibly it was the only pre-Roman urban site in Britain. I'm sure there's loads of qualifiers to what those things all mean, but that's kind of a title it's got. Um, in in AD 49, AD 50, so just after the invasion, six, seven years, it's established as a colonia, colonia victri- victricensis, it's called. That means the colony of the victorious and it's the obvious site for Roman, as we covered in the first episode, for the Roman invasion to kind of nail this main centre of, of, of centralised British population. And it gets turned into this colony of the victorious. It's used to settle retired soldiers, the victorious being these retired soldiers. So this was probably about 3,000 veterans, and that would have displaced somewhere in the region of 90,000 acres of land being used by the Britons. I think that's a circle about three or four kilometres in radius all the way around. Now, the need for settling soldiers on this land actually comes from uh, basically the sign-up motivation, the sign-up bonus for the legions. Uh, After the Marian reforms, which is where the the army was professionalised, and we'll talk about the effects of that as well, basically they're signing up rather than the sort of worthy citizen farmers of of Rome for a, you know, nine-month campaign. They're signing up people for life, and they're signing up basically anyone and inevitably, that means they're signing up uh, people who otherwise can't find a job, people who otherwise don't have any land, people who basically don't have anything to go back to. And one of the sign-up bonuses is you say, well, once you've had done your 15, 20 years, we'll give you 30 acres or whatever to, to start your own farm and to have your family and your retirement. Now, ironically, that need for the land is possibly one of the motivations for invasion in the first place in order to fulfil the contract that they made 15, 20 years ago, some other emperor made a promise, and now they have to fulfil it. The irony there is that for more conquest, particularly, you know, of a rowdy island like Britain, Rome then needs more soldiers. And so you have this kind of vicious cycle of needing more retirement land, of, well, there's a whole other problem of of the, the kind of traditional homelands of Italy all being owned by sort of four people uh, who have amassed far too much wealth. And therefore you get this unsustainable model for expansion. 
But in any case, a major reason for, for, for the locals being pissed off, as you can imagine, is this 90,000 acre confiscation of land. And all of the targets that we're going to see for Boudicca have a real purpose. They're, they're sort of symbolic targets as much as anything. And this is one of the reasons for, for, for the target that Camulodunum has painted on it, the colony of the victorious. She's going to show them exactly how victorious they are. Now, Tacitus suggests that the, the settlers, as he calls the veterans, treated the locals kind of as prisoners and slaves, and that the soldiers who were on active service did likewise, because they saw this model of retirement, this, this way of being as quite attractive as being this sort of overlayer in society who can do whatever you like. And this all contributes to a situation, as I've said, where the intertribal antipathy gets overcome and they're able to unite. And for this reason, amongst a few others, Boudicca turns her horde squarely towards Camulodunum. Now, the Roman preparations for this coming storm, because they must know it's coming, 120,000 people make um, a bit of noise, and uh, word would certainly spread, is either a, a kind of a farce or a horror show, depending on what, which side of things you're on. Uh, Tacitus says it had no walls, uh, that, quote, Roman commanders had neglected thinking of amenities rather than needs. End quote. And again, he's laying into Roman decadence, that they like amenities, they like baths, they like underfloor heating, um, and they don't like the rugged martial virtues of Rome. And the worthies of Camulodunum can't appeal to Paulinus for help because he's 300 miles away, as, as I've detailed. So they have to go to Decianus Catus, the procurator, uh, who was probably in London, though it's unclear. And Catus sends 200 men, uh, who Tacitus tells us are, quote, incompetently armed. End quote, which we can probably take to mean they didn't bring their armour, they didn't bring their swords, possibly anything. So essentially, Catus has deployed community support officers to riot, 200 of them, to a riot of 120,000 people. Tacitus also kind of suggests that there was maybe kind of pro-rebel agents or that, I guess, the sympathetic local Britons misled the Roman leadership, uh, which might explain how poorly they, 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 they responded. So Camulodunum, without walls, admittedly full of 3,000 veterans, he sent these 200 unarmed men. Now, what's the state of Boudicca's army, I suppose, as, as compared to that? Tacitus describes it as a, quote, native horde, um, end quote. Uh, as I, well, the, the word horde is obviously a translation anyway and is has all sorts of, you know, sort of post-colonial layers on top of it. Um, as I said, it's certainly numbering the tens of thousands of, of fighters, it's 120,000 people or 100,000 people, according to our sources. That would also include children and old men and old women and, and all sorts, but, but tens of thousands of fighters, probably mostly armed. This is, a, as I said, a warrior society. There was this great disarming that has happened in, in 47 AD. But people are quite good at getting weapons or finding weapons when they need them, even if those are spears and farm implements and those sorts of things. And this horde, as we're going to call it just for now, descends on Camulodunum, basically undefended. And Tacitus describes, quote, When all else had been ravaged or burnt, the garrison concentrated itself in the temple. After two days' siege, it fell by storm, end quote. Tacitus gives that this very short shrift here. But it sounds as if Boudicca's army, if it can be called that, I'm, I'm scrabbling for an, a not-loaded word, host, let's say, um, just sweep into town and they destroy everything. And the temple, which he mentions there, was probably one of the only stone buildings and, and almost certainly the most substantial structure in the, in the town. So these 200 sort of beleaguered Roman soldiers retreat into it with 
presumably as much of the local population as can fit, as many of those veterans as, as managed to get there as well. And the temple also would have been filled with townspeople. It, it would have been a centre for the elderly and the sick, quite possibly too, and for any refugees to flee to as well. And for two days they hold out against this terrifying mob. Presumably they're hoping that somebody's going to come and rescue them. And it was a, a seriously impressive building from the foundations, which measure about... 30 metres by 25 metres, that's for the kind of central pedestal, with colonnades of 9 metre columns uh, standing in a walled precinct of about 160 by 180 metres. So it's a, it's sort of a fortress and a, a dramatic place for a last stand. And just to place yourself there for a minute, by the end of the second day, the glow of the burning town, the smoke of that, the smell of corpses, the smell of the destruction would have saturated this place. I mean, again, just to take that parallel back to, to the much nicer form of this at Glastonbury, but the smell and the sound and the, the energy that suffuses the air in a place filled with that many people. And you know that this woman isn't taking any prisoners. You know that probably you know what's happened to Boudicca. You quite possibly know all the stuff that you personally have done to these locals who are now suddenly in a position to kill you horribly. And you have to cower inside this building whilst listening to the sound of thousands of people tearing your town to pieces around you. And, and just to refocus on this building, the temple, as I've been saying, we spoke about it in the first episode, the Temple of Claudius. Tacitus says, quote, the temple raised to the deified Claudius continually met the view like the citadel of an eternal tyranny, while the priests chosen for its service were bound under the pretext of religion to pour out their fortunes like water, end quote. So again, th this, is the, this is the temple of Claudius, the conquering emperor, and the priesthood are the local elites, they're people like Prasitagus, and it's more like a membership club. So it's this ultimate symbol of oppression. And as I, as I just said, it's huge. It actually, if you, you can look at old, sort of the footprint of the town, according to archaeologists, and it's like, probably like 15% of the town is this temple. And I suppose slightly meta to this podcast this isn't the first time in history, you know, the, the, whatever, the summer of 2020, it's not the first time that buildings have been cancelled, that statues and physical public objects have become the focus of social discourse. But anyway, after two days, this final beleaguered holdout is, is broken into, and this collection of grim, grizzled veterans, probably with their nicked, you know, rusted old swords taken down from above the hearth, and scraps of protection strapped onto their body are all slaughtered, and the temple is is totally destroyed. Now, the holdout hope for the, the beleaguered inhabitants of the temple are probably a man called Quintus Petelius Cerealis. He's actually the future governor of Britannia, and he's caught wind that something is happening. He's the commander of the Ninth Legion, the Ninth Legio Hispania. They're much storied, actually. There's, if anyone's ever read the, the Rosemary Sutcliffe novel, the, the Eagle of the Ninth, this is them. Uh, and they've also served with great acclaim elsewhere. And they're scattered in, in a few forts around, probably around the area of what is now Lincoln. And Quintus Petelius Cerealis catches wind that something big is happening. But he's got no idea how big. His job is kind of holding down the local area, making sure everything's fine. And they've dealt with this kind of stuff before. They have no idea how big this kind of thing is. And to some extent, I imagine they've bought the, the party line that these people are hopelessly disorganised barbarians and there's no way they can really threaten a legion. There's no way they can threaten a legion. A legion is, a is a by this point, a kind of monumental symbol of Roman power. And he decides he's going to go and gather up a force and he's going to just go and show the upstart Britons what's what. 
And a legion is made up of about 5,000 legionaries. We'll come back to this because this is sort of important. About 5,000 legionaries and about the same number of auxiliaries. Auxiliaries are, as you can tell from the word, they're, they're added on bits to the legion. The legionaries are the, the citizen soldiers of Rome. The auxiliaries are non-citizens of kind of conquered peoples. So this would be Germans or Spaniards or Gauls or North Africans, and they all tend to have their specialties. The legionary is basically just a heavy infantry soldier. That's what the Romans are really good at producing. And they, quite sensibly, quite early on in their military career, go, we're not good at cavalry, we're not particularly good at archers, we don't do elephants very well or whatever. We'll get the locals to do who are good at that to do that. So, so they have Cretan archers or Balearic slingers or... Uh, Spanish horsemen. But in any case, he gathers up about half his legionaries because he wants to leave some behind to hold down the area. And he's reinforced with some auxiliary cavalry around probably two and a half thousand men in total. So about half his legionaries and some cavalry on top of it. And he heads down the road towards Camulodunum. And for a minute, just to place ourselves in their sandals, who who are you if you're one of these legionaries? Actually, you're probably not an Italian. You're almost certainly not a Roman. You're almost certainly not from the city of Rome. You're probably not from Italy. You're likely drawn from another province at this point. You're a, you're a Spanish-born citizen of Rome. You're a Gallic-born citizen of Rome. You're an Illyrian. And you've been living here probably amongst these people for, 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 for years, probably for most of your, of your career, with your mates, day in, day out. And you're probably approaching this town expecting to do what you've done before, to put down some locals. It probably won't be a really serious fight. It will be more of like a heavy-handed policing operation, only to see the glow of Camulodunum on the horizon. Now, we're not actually sure how close they got to Colchester, but they're met by Boudicca's forces. And furthermore, we actually have no idea how the following battle unfolded. The Roman kind of fighting machine is designed for pitched battles, for battles they know are going to happen against centralised groups of people who are also there to have a fight. That's what the Romans absolutely excel at. As I said, the legionary is this heavy infantry man. He's got... We'll talk about his kit, but he's probably got about 15, 20 kilos worth of kit on. He wants to line up with all of his mates in close formation on a big open plain, walk towards his enemies and grind them down. It seems likely that these two and a half thousand men were, were ambushed and ultimately just totally overwhelmed. The Britons, again, this is their home turf. They know the place. It would have been much more forested than, than it is now. I don't know if you've been to East Anglia, but it's... It's a, you, you might think it's a hard place to hide in because there's not much, there's not many trees, there's not many hills. But then it would have been a much more forested, much more wilderness kind of place. These thousands of Britons would have been able to to crawl across this this landscape, use the back roads, the the little woodland paths. And these two and a half thousand men result in the following in Tacitus's words, quote, the victorious Britons routed the legion and slaughtered the infantry to a man, end quote. And Cherialis, their, their leader, retreats. Uh, with his cavalry, and he manages to get the eagle, the standard, the centre of the legion, the soul of the legion out, and he hides in his fort. And this is so significant. I mean, he did, again, Tacitus gives it quite short shrift, but this is really significant, the defeat of a legion, what that represents. Um, Varus and 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 Arminius, you may have heard of them, but Varus is, is this Augustan uh, Roman general, and he goes into the Teutoburg forest in western Germany with, I think, three legions and this great German freedom fighter leader who Varus actually thinks is on his side, manages to draw the tribes around him, ambush him and totally wipe out these three legions. And we're told that Augustus, the emperor at the time, kind of fell apart, that he wept for days 
we have that famous quote, Varus, give me back my legions, that he, he supposedly sort of screamed, beating his head against a wall. So the, this is really symbolically significant. As I said, that the legion is like this sort of monolithic figure that has marched across Europe and marched into Asia and has conquered the known world. And the Romans are kind of ready to accept that occasionally a legionary detachment or a little militia force will get defeated. But for a legion, or well, half a legion in this case, to be just wiped out is symbolically really important and is a real blow. And I think explains a lot of the the weight of the coming Roman reprisal. And is weirdly, well, it's not a part of the of the obvious popular story, I don't think. I, I think, and it, weirdly, this small-ish defeat is actually a big reason for the overall events and a big reason why it's remembered and why it's written about by, why it ends up being written about by Tacitus and Dio, and therefore why we know about it. But it gets written out because it's, I suppose, it pales in comparison to what's about to come. Now, next in this story is a moment that, that 95% of the populace of the British Isles and probably a good portion of the remaining 5% have yearned for ever since. The total obliteration of the city of London. So Boudicca keeps her army rolling and London, Londinium, makes perfect sense if her plan is the destruction of these symbols of, of continental encroachment. We saw it with Camulodunum in the Temple of Claudius and now London... Well, London was, was a new settlement. It was actually founded by the Romans. It, it d didn't exist pre-Roman pre invasion. It was probably made as a sort of a supply hub. And its placement makes perfect sense for that. And I suppose that's, that's part of why it's been such a successful city in many ways since. But my sense is that, that, that London was then a symbol of, of continental commercial kind of interference. This was where all the exploitative moneylenders had gathered. As I mentioned, in order for the, for the British elites to buy into the, the Roman cultural package they had to drink wine they had to go to bars they had they had to own slaves they needed money lenders they needed people selling them the stuff for the money that they had just lent them and this is i think londinium is where these people gather and this was where decianus catus the procurator had made his base nick fields has a nice turn of phrase about london he says quote this embryonic town was on its way to becoming what it is now a city of consumers of people who are profoundly civilized but not primarily useful end quote and, you know, there, he's kind of making it, but there is a flippant comparison to be made to modern London um, and I suppose the rest of the country's attitude towards it uh, as a sort of exploitative sort of sink of money. But I think that there is a real resonance in this story. I think it resonates today because it's about the rejection of a kind of encroaching way of life in favour of a defiant nativist movement. And there's an obvious parallel, I suppose, to Brexit, to, to the Brexiteers as the, as the rebellious Britons kicking out the continental London-based European political elite. But there's also, predating that, a resonance for, for the green movement, for the hippie movement, for the punk movement. You kind of pick your movement and London quite easily becomes the, the symbol that you want to reject, to reject globalised, urbanised, financialised, whatever, sanitised, decadent lifestyles uh, in favour of something more more British, whatever that means, or more natural, or more wild, or more authentic, or more druidic. I don't think it detracts from the strength of that resonance to note that it, it is so ubiquitous. It can be transplanted to so many different causes. I think that's part of the story today anyway. So sometime around now is when Paulinus is made aware of what's going on, and he starts to make his way down from Anglesey. Tacitus says he, quote, with remarkable firmness marched straight through the midst of the enemy upon London. End quote. So the idea is that basically uh, Paulinus gets his fast, his cavalry, little detachment, and he shoots off ahead of his army to get to London as quickly as possible through the midst of the enemy. So we get the feeling that the country is kind of rising up and is, is drawing towards this central 
point of infection, I suppose, from the point of view of the colonial authorities. They're drawing towards Boudicca and Paulinus is cutting through these these gathering war bands. And he's able to do this as an, a note because of Watling Street. Watling Street is this this arrow straight military Roman road that, that conveniently runs pretty much straight from where Paulinus is down to where Boudicca is. We'll come on to it later anyway. And Paulinus and Catus's response um, differ somewhat. So just to clarify here, Paulinus is the governor. Decianus Catus is the procurator. Uh, basically, it's the difference between the manager and the, the kind of representative from corporate. So the governor is the manager. He's in charge of the province. He is the highest ranking person there. The procurator is in charge of taxation. He's in charge of extracting wealth for the benefit of the metropole, for the benefit of Rome. And the, the blame for this uprising has been probably quite fairly laid at the feet of Catus of the procurator by contemporary commentators and and historians since then tiberius the second emperor the one that came after augustus had a, a useful phrase he said quote the object is to shear the sheep not to skin it end quote and that's to say that the point is in having a province is to is to extract the wealth not to not to kill the province and catus had very much skinned the sheep um, in trying to get too much money out of the locals. It was almost certainly Catus who had decided that all of Prasitagus's estate should go to Rome. And in doing so, actually, a, a little side note, Prasitagus almost certainly had a, a sort of Roman-style will, uh, like legally notarised, as it were. Um, the fact he became king recently, it was probably after the small rebellion in 47, which probably means he was sort of a, a Roman, pro-Roman sort of compromised candidate. He was a Roman citizen and so forth. So Catus was... I don't. I mean, I don't. I'm not a Roman lawyer, and they were very litigious. But, but, but was quite likely in some senses breaking the law in making this kind of hostile takeover happen. So again, that's why it's so perfect for Tacitus to frame this as a sort of morality tale. Anyway, um, on hearing of this this approaching horde, Catus's response is to is to promptly uh, jump onto a boat and go to Gaul and flee the big mess that he's just made. Paulinus, on the other hand, can't do this. Again, he's the manager. It's his, he, you know, it, this is his province and he's got to sort it out. It's also a bit of an opportunity for him. As we heard, he's sort of, he's attempting to rival the, the actions of this guy called Bulo in, in Armenia. This is about prestige. This is an opportunity for him to show his mettle. And he's heading down from North Wales as quickly as he can. He gathers up uh, troops from scattered garrisons. He's presumably sending messages to the Four Winds, to all of the troops in Britain to say, gather up, we're going to need to deal with this thing. And he decides to ride ahead with this group of cavalry through the midst of the enemy to Londinium. And Tacitus says the following, quote, He felt some doubt whether to choose it as a base of operations, but on considering the fewness of his troops and the sufficiently severe lesson which had been read to the rashness of Petilius, that's the commander of the, the, the destroyed half-legion, he determined to save the country as a whole at the cost of one town. The laments and tears of the inhabitants as they implored his protection found him inflexible. He gave the signal for departure and embodied in the column those capable of accompanying the march, all who had been detained by the disabilities of sex, by the lassitude of age, or by local attachment, fell into the hands of the enemy, end quote. So basically he's, he's decided, I'm not going to stick around in London. Camulodunum got overrun. This half legion got overrun. I'm going to do it properly this time. And there's an important kind of casting, the stoic sort of manliness of Paulinus that we're seeing here that is going to run through the rest of this story. It highlights the barbarity of the merciless Britons because he, he's, he's, he's not killing these poor, these poor inhabitants of Londinium. He's leaving them to be killed by the merciless Britons. His act is sort of coldly rational and therefore virtuous, despite being a bit mean. Um, it also appears to describe sex as a disability. So that's, again, a theme that runs through this story. 
but he gets together any refugees that can join him and he heads back towards his army, probably somewhere in the Midlands. Now, Boudicca's horde does descend, horde, sorry, I can't use that word. Boudicca's host um, descends on London. And Dio notes, he's our other source, a bit more prone to drama, the savagery of the Britons. He says, quote, to wreak indescribable slaughter, those who were taken captive by the Britons were subjected to every known form of outrage. The worst and the most bestial atrocity committed by their captors was the following. They hung up naked the noblest and most distinguished women, and then cut off their breasts and sewed them to their mouths, in order to make the victims appear to be eating them. Afterwards they impaled the women on sharp skewers, run lengthways through the entire body. All this they did to the accompaniment of sacrifices, banquets, and wanton behaviour, not only in all their other sacred places, but particularly in the grove of Andarte." End quote. Andarte is Andraste, the, that uh, goddess that Boudicca has sort of entreated for, for victory at the beginning, this goddess of victory. And there's obviously so, loads of horrific stuff there. Again, Dio's busily reminding us that the, the, the Britons are terrible barbarians. There's also a strong sense that, that Boudicca is on a sort of punitive mission here. She is punishing those, basically anyone who isn't with her is against her. And that includes Britons, Britons who she's maybe seeing, seeing to, to collaborate with the Romans um, and the Romans themselves. There's also, I suppose, a reflection on the, the modern feminist perspective. You know, we've got that... Um, book What Would Boudicca Do?, which in many senses is, is a kind of admirable publication. But we do need to remember that um, when we ask what would Boudicca do, possibly cutting off people's breasts and sewing them to their mouths is, is within the realms of possibility. So London sacked, Boudicca now turns to another target, the town of Verulamium, St Albans. This is a much less kind of hated target. It's much less obvious. It seems maybe she's run out of obvious targets. There's not that many centres of population. And we don't know much more than the fact that she burns this to the ground as well. And there's a question here about, about motivation. It begins, the focus begins to change as, as, as to whether this is about loot or whether it's about revenge, whether it's, it's greedy or whether it's punitive. And there's perhaps the suggestion that, that, that Boudicca has catalyzed this whole thing, has brought this thing together, but there's 100,000 people here none of which have necessarily decided actively that she's their queen, that she's going to tell them exactly what to do. Verulamium was, a, 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 in large part, a kind of seat of local, you know, that is to say British local governance and power. The Romans tended to kind of co-opt local power structures. Verulamium was one of these. So Boudicca wasn't, again, wasn't sacking Roman towns occupied by Roman people. This is one of the things her detractors would bring up, I suppose. Uh, the ambivalence when we think of her as a British freedom fighter. I think she's more a personal freedom fighter, maybe a more kind of familial freedom fighter. But it does throw into relief this revenge aspect, this idea of you're with her or against her. Well, again, reminds us of, of the, the, the personal emotional aspect of what's happened to her, that to some extent, maybe the worst has already happened. The absolute worst has happened to her daughters and she's been publicly beaten and she kind of has nothing to lose. And so a destruction of really anything Roman, even if it's Britain's collaborating, is, is in keeping with her goals. Tastus has the following to say, quote, the natives, with their delight in plunder and their distaste for exertion, left the forts and the garrison posts on one side, and made for the point which offered the richest material for the pillager, and was unsafe for a defending force. It is established that close upon 70,000 Roman citizens and allies fell in the places mentioned, for the enemy neither took captive nor sold into captivity. There was none of the other commerce of war. He was hasty with slaughter and the gibbet, with arson and the cross, as though his day of reckoning must come but only after he had snatched his revenge in the interval. End quote. I love that phrase, 
His day of reckoning must come, but only after he had snatched his revenge in the interval. That it's almost like Boudicca, and I suppose all of these Britons, realise that what they're doing is, is maybe doomed to failure. They know there's going to be a horrible Roman reprisal. And they're sort of, they're sort of saying, well, if you're going to kill all of us, we're going to, we're going to show, we're going to do our own reprisal beforehand. And I suppose it, it makes it seem like this, this isn't really a rational kind of geopolitical move to gain control of the island. It's, it's more an expression of, of vengeance against the past and the future wrongs that the Britons and Boudicca have suffered. Now, the, the problem with that point of view, which I'm just realising as I'm, as I'm speaking about this and, and as I was putting the notes together on this, is all of the words that I just came up with are falling right in line with what Tacitus wants me to think. It's not rational, it's, it's knee-jerk, it's emotional, it's, it's primal. And it exoticizes, I suppose, the Britons in their kind of noble rage. And Boudicca, in her, 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 in Tacitus's mind, I think, her feminine emotional reaction, as compared to, as I said, Paulinus's kind of masculine, rational one. Paulinus is able to rationally think about the situation and think, no, London can't be saved, I'm going to leave with my troops, I'm going to make sure this works. Whereas... Boudicca is capable only of this sort of powerful, absolutely Tacitus doesn't, doesn't take that away from her, but uh, an irrational female rage. And one that, that can only be spurred by a kind of familial reason. There's no higher value. The suggestion is that Paulinus is, is doing this on behalf of, of a greater idea of, of the spreading of, of the Roman civilization, or even a greater idea of his own prestige, which I think for the Romans is a perfectly laudable aim. Whereas vengeance is a kind of deeply um, animal, emotional feeling, which Tacitus and the Roman audience cannot credit with, with any degree of virtue. So just, I suppose, to, to, to try to flip it, to try to couch this in another way, we could say that Boudicca has this, this large force under her control. She's already flipped at least one major tribe, the Trinovantes. She's she's burned Camulodunum to the ground. She's burned Londinium to the ground. And perhaps she's she's trying to see if she can swing the whole province past the tipping point. If she can move through these places and cause enough disruption and show the Romans to be incapable of protecting the Britons, which again, as we said, is the contract between state and governed, then the, the whole province will flip, the whole population will rise up. And it had happened, as we, as we saw, as I just said, with Varus and Arminius in, in Germany, that the whole place becomes ungovernable and just not worth even setting foot in. So we, I, I just want to invite you, you know, we will come back to this idea that this is a, a, a campaign of vengeance, not one of, of strategy. But we do need to carry on checking in with ourselves and thinking, well, actually... We need to credit Boudicca with, with the capability of, of thinking strategically and of, be, of aiming towards something higher and something longer term. And as we'll see with this coming battle, its outcome is actually fairly contingent. And it's not very difficult to come up with an alternative history world in which all of Boudicca's actions are seen as some sort of great movement towards a, a sustained Celtic Britain outside of the Roman Empire. Now, interestingly, Sastus talks about, about loot there, isn't he? He's talking about, about the sort of material possessions that are being taken along the way. He's obviously casting the Britons as sort of greedy and lazy here. So as well as being thoughtlessly emotional and, and vengeful, they're also lazy and venal. He says, quote, their delight in plunder and their distaste for exertion left the forts and garrison posts on one side, end quote. He's sort of saying, how dare they avoid battle? 
How dare they avoid? We've carefully built these forts. We've carefully put together these well-drilled armies. Why aren't they coming to fight them? They're going somewhere else. It's very irritating. And I suppose, again, there's a broader reflection on the, the kind of British fighting style, ambush, retreat, opportunity, sort of a sort of very elastic insurgency warfare, as opposed to the Roman fighting style of set-piece battles that the Britons don't see any problem with. The Britons don't see that as dishonourable, but, but Tacitus very much does. And there is evidence of stuff being taken. There is evidence of, of, of kind of buried coin hoards and bits of statues and stuff that have evidently been transplanted from this kind of area back over towards East Anglia. But again, this is not just venal. This is not just materialistic. It's a kind of reclaiming of material wealth. I think there's a similarity to, to modern protest riots, we see it in the news narrative all the time, don't we? That, well, the fact that something's been looted means that this riot is kind of the whole thing's discredited. You know, this idea that it can't be at all ideologically motivated or or pure if people are, are, are taking stuff. It seems disconnected, but I think it's it's very much part of the same impulse to, to right a wrong, you know, to get recompense from a society or from a situation that you feel has failed you. And I'm not, I'm not saying that's right or wrong, I suppose, but but that those two things are linked. They're not part of, of separate impulses. Uh, Tastus does also comment, quote, the enemy neither took captive nor sold into captivity. There was none of the other commerce of war, end quote. And that could mean the commerce of captives, I suppose, like the exchange of prisoners. But that's that's quite a modern, you know, sort of post-Geneva Convention way of reading it. I think much more more likely that's that's a reflection of the Roman focus on war as a means of populating a slave economy. There is a school of thought that lots of the wars that Rome engaged in, uh, particularly sort of the, the, the proactive ones, the ones that it sought out, were in order to, to bring in slaves. And during its, its, its time of expansion, when it was conquering the kind of the whole of the Mediterranean, those were in massive abundance. Um, and as I said, at this point, Rome sort of at its, at its largest, at its largest geographical extent. And if you can't have these wars of expansion, you also can't continue to repopulate the slave population, which, which the economy has come to rely on. So I suppose from Tacitus's point of view, from a Roman point of view, it's almost kind of distasteful to conduct war and to, to kill captives, to just slaughter people rather than to take them as slaves, because that's that's so kind of baked into the cake of, of why you'd bother in the first place. Now, we've heard this number from Tacitus for 70,000 dead Roman citizens and allies. How true is this? It, it, it does actually seem possible. The combined populations of Camulodunum, Londinium and Verulamium, plus half the Ninth Legion, um and presumably people that, that kind of between those places suffer along the way. We can assume this this host is not just peacefully passing through the countryside. But the archaeology is fairly convincing on this, on the, the sort of the size of this destruction. In all three of these sites, there's literally a layer of burnt material from the mid-first century, uh, right when this was happening, which indicates something really apocalyptic happening that must have been huge. If we can still see it 2,000 years later, it's, it's even called the Boudican Destruction Horizon which is quite a cool name. I would like to have a Destruction Horizon named after me sometime. A bit of a side note, in um, Christina Unwin and, and Richard Hingley's book on Boudicca's Rebellion, they attest that that reconstruction seemed to point to the, the tile and daub buildings, which most of these places would have been constituted of, are pretty unflammable. They don't actually burn very well, so it's quite likely that the attackers were really quite methodically burning these places down. This wasn't a byproduct of of just there being too many people and there being a chaotic raising of a town and a fire spreading by accident, but they were systematically going house to house and and starting these fires. There's something very purposeful and quite bitter about that. 
Uh, Hingley and Unwin also detail these three specific archaeological finds that kind of shed some light, I think, and and are interesting anyway. Um, all of these are kind of disputed or disputable, but um, we'll just we'll go with them. The first is a possible priest of Claudius. He was this. He was found in the 1840s by a guy called the Reverend Jenkins uh, on Lexton Hill, which is near Colchester. And uh, Jenkins describes, quote, the skeleton of a man with his head downwards and a patera beside him. A patera is a sort of holy bowl that a priest would have carried. We may imagine it to have been that of a priest who, in his attempt to escape during the insurrections, had been seized by the Britons and buried alive, end quote. I mean, equally, it may have just been a, a man with a bowl, um, but... If it is, this is quite, a you know, all of this stuff about the symbolism of attacking the cult of Claudius and then possibly burying somebody alive uh, in the supposition of, of Reverend Jenkins um, speaks to the to the strength of feeling here. Uh, next um, is this is a tombstone of an auxiliary called uh, Longinus Zdapes, and he was found in 1928. And this he's a really lovely snapshot of who who was involved uh, in this event. Uh, we know he was a cavalry officer serving in the 3rd Thracian Cavalry. Remember, I was talking about the auxiliaries as constituted of the sort of various, you know, cosmopolitan makeup of, of the empire of those partially absorbed peoples that had specialties in certain things, and the, the Thracians were very good at, at uh, kind of horseback warfare. Um, he came from a place called Sardisia in Bulgaria, which you probably guess from the from the name. He died at the age of 40 after having been in the army for 15 years. And it shows us this kind of cosmopolitan thing. You've got somebody from which, which is specifically facilitated by the Roman Empire. You've got somebody from Bulgaria in a very, a not particularly mobile world, dying in Britannia, uh, you know, f- after 15 years of service in the, in the legions. Um, his, his tombstone actually shows him on a horse sort of spearing somebody, presumably a naked Briton. Um, and it was found tipped face down and it looks as if it's been sort of smashed with something. Um, taking off taking off part of the horse's face um, and this is theorized perhaps to be an act of defacement by the by Britons who you know moving through the area were provoked by this depiction of, of Roman dominance on the tombstone uh, there is a theory that it may have been the workers that actually uncovered it that that smashed it but um, again more interesting the first way um, and then thirdly and this is just a, it's a lovely insight I think into how archaeology works was the excavation of a, a pottery shop in Colchester um, this pottery shop was a kind of Roman-style shop. It was selling something called Samian ware, uh, which was a, a luxury good. It's this sort of red pottery with with patterns, with, with inlay. Um, and thousands of these vessels were unearthed, all cemented together with molten glass, which had dripped from other, you know, glass vessels stored above them, which gives you a, a picture of the ferocity of the, of the fire in Colchester, Camulodunum. But also, I, I just love that it literally perhaps tells us how this shopkeeper 2,000 years ago had laid out his wares that day. Um, there was a kind of controversy in that these pots are actually similar to vessels fashionable quite a bit earlier, you know, earlier than the mid-first century, which might, you know, cast doubt on the whole thing, indicating that it's actually an earlier fire, it's got nothing to do with Boudicca. But then there's, there's actually no evidence of any other fires, any other destruction in the local area from from before then, and it's all in the same layer as this Boudican destruction horizon. And the conclusion of this is then actually makes it even more interesting. It's actually the the, the Britons were getting like out of date pottery. They were getting the crap, uh, you know, last season or, or five seasons back, which gives again a picture of Britain as this backwater place and and maybe a sense of the you know the elites being sold this idea of what Romanness is. But but even still, these kind of these shysters going, oh, there's a load of naive newly minted Roman 
aristocrats in in Britannia that I can go and sell absolutely anything to. I can probably crank up the prices because they don't know what it's all worth anyway, and um, maybe gives us a bit of a clue as to why the why the Britons were so um, were so angry. Now the archaeology has it turned up kind of a distinct lack of corpses around these places. As Tacitus is telling, seventy thousand people died. You'd, you'd expect to find some corpses. Either Boudicca was much less brutal than Tacitus suggests, or she was only attacking material things and she wasn't killing people. Or actually, these the, the accusations of sacrifice to Andraste of human sacrifice as a, as a druidic practice are actually true. So these people were, were taken and were killed on other sites. On this note, we do have a really interesting the head of a bronze statue of Claudius, which was quite likely taken from an equine statue in uh, in Londinium, I think, um, was found in a river in East Anglia, just the head. And it was then kind of matched up in, in terms of proportion and stuff. It fit with some other bits. But it ends up in this this river in East Anglia. And this is quite likely an echo of a kind of older ritual uh, that, that, that bodies of water were sort of seen as sort of... Uh, holy places as places of sort of transition to the to the world of the gods or to a more spiritual world um, and that it might have been a sort of echoing of a kind of human sacrifice that perhaps used to be done but wasn't a thing that people did anymore so they were sort of sacrificing Claudius they sort of did a, a sort of analogue of a, of a human sacrifice by by using his head there is again an alternative as with all of these things that somebody nicked it and in the heat of the moment and then realised that it could get them in quite a lot of trouble um, if the Romans found it so they just you know dumped it in a river so Boudicca has now kind of ravaged these three settlements. Paulinus, as we said, is, is headed, well, he's already headed down away southeast. He's got to London. He's run back off to the Midlands to gather his troops. And Boudicca, if you look at the locations of these places, if you go to Colchester and then to London and then up to St Albans, you're, you're heading in a kind of scoop and up towards the northwest. With Paulinus coming southeast, they're heading for this kind of great standoff. So I mentioned Watling Street earlier. Um, it's the road that Paulinus had, had haired down with his cavalry to get to London ahead of Boudicca. And this is a, a Roman road. It ran pretty much dead straight, um, kind of across country from southeast, I think from, from Dover or what what Dover was then to kind of northwestish to North Wales, Liverpool kind of area. Watling Street is itself actually an old English name. Another reminder that the names we have here are, are kind of rung through all of these generations of changes. It's not Roman. And we actually now know Watling Street by the far more poetical A2 and A5 trunk roads. Uh, but in any case, it's one of these, you know, these feats of Roman military engineering. It's it's made for exactly the purpose that it's about to serve. It's to get the army to a trouble spot as quickly as it possibly can. Paulinus has got wind of the whole situation. He's gathered up as many men as he can scrape together uh, from the troops he have in, has in North Wales, as well as any garrisons in the, in the nearby area. He's now heading down Watling Street. Boudicca, as I said, is coming up through St Albans, heading northwest, and you get what is actually pretty rare in history, a battle that both sides are looking for. The Romans are hugely outnumbered. We'll get to just how outnumbered in, in good time, but they're massively outnumbered and they know it. But this is, this is very much their way of war, to seek direct battle. It's sort of a part of the psychodrama of warfare. By, by seeking out this direct confrontation, they sort of project this confidence that often carries them through. Um, moreover, there is the kind of, kind of PR angle to this whole thing. For every day they allow this insurrection to remain unchallenged, the weaker the power of the empire looks to both internal and to external enemies. They can't allow people to openly show their opposition to the empire. They also want to kind of avoid a drawn-out insurgency. They, they, they want to smash their enemies whilst they're actually all in one place. The Romans have kind of often struggled with this kind of asymmetrical warfare um, as we said, just after the Claudian invasion, dealing with Caraticus went on for a really long time and Roman troops aren't very well 
situated to do that. So they, they much prefer it. While their enemy are all together, they're going to seek out a, a kind of decisive battle. Boudicca, on the other hand, as, as little as we know about her goals, we don't really, you know, we don't have any of her words, is at the head of a, a probably fairly fragile inter-tribal alliance. I imagine he's kind of relying upon the momentum of the situation as much as anything else to hold everything together, to keep the Iceni and the Trinovantes and anyone else she's picked up along the way together, pointing in the same direction. And as soon as she, you know, strikes camp and says, we're going to hang out here for a couple of months, they will all drift away really quickly. Remember, lots of these people are agricultural labourers. Labourers is the wrong word. They're, they're agricultural peasant population. They, they have their own farms to go back to. They have their own commercial enterprises to go back to. Also, this is a totally different kind of insurrection sort of resistance to what Karatek has put up. The aim of this kind of guerrilla insurgency is to make it very uncomfortable for the oppressor to remain in the country, whereas it seems that the whole point of this wholesale rebellion that Boudicca had, had broken out into, out in the open, is about projecting an image. It's about sending a clear message to the whole province that it doesn't need to kowtow to the Roman overlords. There's a much more simple way of doing this. We can just all band together and fight them and win, and then we'll be free. Now, significantly, Boudicca's also already defeated this Roman detachment in the field. She hasn't taken their eagle, she hasn't taken the kind of soul of the of the legion, but she's shown that that the Romans are not invincible. And Paulinus's army is now really it's the only meaningful concentration of Roman military power in the whole province. So this is really high stakes for both sides. If the Britons can defeat the Romans at this coming battle, then it would be a huge blow to Roman control of Britannia and to Rome's aura of invincibility. Because I suppose the, the problem with creating an ideology of an inferior people, you know, as the Romans have done with basically all of their colonial subjects, is that, you know, like, like with Jesse Owens at the 1936 Olympics, they might beat you and they might make your whole ideology look kind of absurd. Now, the battle that we're approaching is called the Battle of Watling Street for obvious reasons. We don't really know the location of the Battle of Watling Street, just as we don't really know the exact position of the street itself. But it's a, it's a fairly safe bet it took place somewhere in the Midlands, you know, as vague as that is, uh, and likely probably in the kind of North Midlands, as it would it would make sense for Paulinus wanting to draw Boudicca as far northwest as possible to give himself time to gather up his forces, uh, to draw her away from her home turf. One possible location, quite likely one, is a place called Manchester near Leicester. Uh, it, it, we'll talk about the kind of geographic features that are spoken about, but but it kind of fits it quite closely and it's in the, the rough area of the country you'd expect it to be. Now, by the time the two armies met, we're told that Paulinus has amassed about ten to 11,000 men. And that's a mixture of legionaries, they're kind of the heavy infantry backbone of the Roman army, uh, with then auxiliaries, light infantry, archers, slingers and cavalry, who kind of back them up, who do all the jobs that the heavy infantry can't do. Two legions had actually failed to join them, so Paulinus may well have been expecting to have quite a few more men. That's the Ninth Hispania, which Boudicca had already in part defeated, and the, the remaining half was uh, was licking its wounds in, in camp. Um, but Paulinus was also expecting another probably 3,000 legionaries from the 2nd Augusta, who were garrisoned down near Exeter, down holding down the southwest. And he had dispatched riders to them, but for some reason, possibly it wouldn't have been able to reach them in time. Possibly the, the commander was feeling kind of cold feet about the whole thing, they never came. And a raid against him, his 10,000 men, 11,000 men, was Boudicca, with reportedly nearly a quarter of a million people. Now, as ridiculous as that number is, and it does sound ridiculous, it probably isn't as far off as scepticism might suggest. 
for scope, that is, that's roughly every single person at Glastonbury uh, last weekend. So hugely outnumbered, Paulinus chooses his ground very carefully. Paulinus can choose the ground because he knows Boudicca is seeking battle with him. Tacitus says, quote, He chose a position approached by a narrow defile and secured in the rear by a wood, first satisfying himself that there was no trace of an enemy except in his front and that the plain there was devoid of cover, end quote. So he's basically, he's backed himself into a corner, into this kind of closed valley, a kind of cul-de-sac created by the woods, and he, he forms his troops up there. Now, if you want to picture the Roman army, it, it looks really in the first century pretty much as classically Roman as you can imagine. If you've ever seen kind of textbook pictures of the Roman legionaries, this is, this is when they look like that. It's a fully professionalised army, which is quite well, comparatively rare across all of history, but certainly in this in this era is 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 the exception, um, and is formed entirely of men of of fighting age. And I I point out that it's entirely professional because the, the legions were had initially been uh, you know citizen levies. The word the words levy and legion are actually etymologically related. Uh, the root of the word is basically to gather, to kind of collect up. So it's a gathering of citizens into these these legions, but. Um, a hundred years or so earlier, before before the time of Boudicca's revolt, this guy called Marius had instituted these sweeping reforms across the whole army and had changed the legions into this, this professional full-time, these units. And this meant that he dropped all the entry requirements that used to be a body of kind of the worthy... There were actually, you know, bars for wealth. You had to own a certain amount of land, be able to provide your own kit, be able to provide your own armour, and to be full citizens and to whatever... What had been a gathering of these worthy citizens was now actually almost the opposite. It was it was a gathering of those with not much else. Romans kind of no longer served in the army, except as a means to political office. The legions were now, you know, as as armies maybe have been throughout history, collections of, of people without much else going for them, who can see it at least as a steady job, as a way to get fed uh, and to make something of yourselves. So these are groups of, of hard men. The frontier legions, those in, in Britain on the Rhine and Danube, tended to be the hardest of them. They spent all of their time eating, sleeping and training together. And they were also stationed pretty much permanently in the provinces they served in. And they were kind of embedded into the local economies and into the local society. And part of the point of this was that, that, that legions would intermarry and, and interbreed with local populations and kind of Romanize them. And in doing so also provide a recruiting ground for more soldiers. So, it, I mean, it occurred to me, it might be totally incorrect, but, but given the, the invasion had taken place about 18 years earlier, it's actually marginally possible, if some people got busy quite quickly, that the sons of Roman soldiers and British mothers, so sort of semi-native Britons, were actually serving in Paulinus's army. Now, the legionary is the focus point. Paulinus had about 7,000 of them, probably. He also has 4,000 auxiliaries, the, these additional units. As I said, Thracian, German horsemen, Syrian archers. So it's, it's actually a fairly multicultural operation. The legionaries themselves, these heavy infantry soldiers in the first century, as I said, look pretty much like, they look like Asterix and Obelix legionaries, probably with slightly more impressive proportions uh, and maybe not wearing the nice red tunic, but, but looking pretty much exactly like that. Each legionary was kitted out pretty identically. And this might seem exhaustive what I'm about to do, but I think it is interesting and I think it demonstrates the very calculated genius for violence that I mentioned in the first episode that the Romans are capable of. Someone has really carefully thought about all of this gear, not just how it's going to look, but how it's going to actually function in the kind of physical, mechanical world of battles and how they work. As far as uh, the weaponry goes, they each carried two pila, 
singular pilum, um, and this is the, the kind of famous heavy throwing spear. Um, it's intended to soften up enemies before they get up close. can probably only be thrown about 20 or 30 yards maybe at the furthest, so it's a heavy thing. It's got this distinctive thin sort of shank behind the point. It's got a, a really hardened iron little metal point at the, at the top, this long thin shank about half its length, and then a really heavy wooden shaft behind that. Now, one of the arguments is that was supposed to kind of bend on impact, the, the thin bit, uh, so that the spear couldn't be thrown back um, or would become kind of an encumbrance if it was stuck in a shield or armour or, or in a person, I suppose. Um, or another idea is actually that the, the thin shank would allow it to pierce through a shield um, and the weight of the shaft would kind of carry it through until it actually would go through a shield and also into a person's body. So it's a it's a really nasty weapon, again, that somebody has somebody's thought out. You can almost imagine them in kind of labs with whatever, you know, pigs cadavers and stuff working out all these how these things work they also carried a, a gladius or a gladius we'll call it a gladius um which is a short sword it's a little kind of about two feet in length um and again you've probably seen one of these before an image of one of these before um if not look one up but the simplicity of this weapon tells you a lot this was actually taken i think from is a kind of a spanish style sword again roman's very good at picking up other people's ideas and employing them en masse it's not a showy weapon at all. It's basically a it's a two-foot spike attached to a handle. And it's designed for stabbing, for using in, in really packed conditions in which you can't really move your arms very much and in which you don't even necessarily need to choose your targets. However, I think more significantly than their weapons, their armour is is important and is interesting. Um, they had these, these distinctive kind of round helmets with the cheek guards and the neck guard down the back. Um, on their bodies, they wore what's called the lorica segmentata. This is the classic Roman armour that's super recognisable. Uh, it's kind of overlapping plates covering their bodies and their, and their thighs as well, sort of like lobster plates of, of iron covering the whole upper body in this flexible metal. Um, and finally, they had the scutum, which I love the name of. Um, and it's this big curved sort of semi-cylindrical shield that covers the body from shoulder to knee. And all of this armour and this equipment is pattern made in these centralised factories across the empire. So this uniformed kind of mass of metal clad soldiers is what you have to picture. Really all looking pretty much exactly the same. And this stuff also adds bulk and it adds weight. So there's something intimidating. As I've said, the, the, the Romans and the Mediterraneans had this possibly sort of small man syndrome. This, this idea that, that those basically northern Europeans were bigger, were stronger, were, were taller, were more naturally suited to the battlefield. And therefore they did all sorts of stuff to make up for it. And I think bigging themselves out in this armour is, is one of those things. And of course, the, the centurions had these horsehair plumes on their helmets and the standard bearers wearing these kind of bear skins or wolf skins. And the standards themselves, these huge golden eagles, are all a part of that same method. Now, in comparison, Boudicca's army is a world away. Um, it's very difficult to describe Boudicca's army because of its lack of uniformity. As I said, it was, it was comprised of about 230,000 people probably an exaggerated number, but many of those people, that's why I'm saying it's maybe not super exaggerated, would have been camp followers, would have been a mixture of men and women of all ages, kids, um, and again, not this sort of strictly military-aged 18 to 40-year-old section of men. It's a kind of cross-section of society. And it's quite likely it would have consisted of many little nuclei of nobles with their retinues who were sort of attached by a sort of client client status to their king or, or to Boudicca. 
Polybius notes the Celts, quote, treated comradeship as of great importance, those among them being most feared and most powerful, who were thought to have the largest number of associates, end quote. So you should imagine these little, almost like kinship groups, tied together by kinship, by comradeship, come from all over the place. And these retinues would be, yeah, you know, tough, sinewy, experienced, full-time, or at least mostly full-time warriors. Nick Fields says, quote, as its flower, some of the best manpower any British warrior ever saw, raw-boned, sinewy men used to handling weapons and to the outdoor life, fit, agile, and extremely belligerent men with a positive taste for fighting, end quote. Now, that might be a bit of a generalisation and a bit broad, but it gives you a good image. However, as Nick Field says there, this was the flower of the army, and this was just the flower of the army, because the vast majority of the rest of it would have been made up of people far more used to farming, to fishing, whatever else it was that most people did. Importantly, none of these people had ever trained together. Even those who were highly trained hadn't ever trained as anything more than an individual. So imagine a, a, huge, a sort of roiling mass of humanity, disorganised but enthusiastic. And adding to this image is the Celtic warhorn, the Carnix, which was this great curving sort of serpentine shape with an open mouth, often shaped like a boar's head, um, which even had apparently a fake tongue inside the boar's head, which would add to the noise. Diodorus describes them as follows. He says, quote, their trumpets are of a peculiar kind. They blow into them and produce a harsh sound that suits the tumult of war, end quote. And I guess multiple people, I don't think they sent out a circular beforehand and said, who's bringing the carnics? I imagine there were many of them. So you've got tens or hundreds of these horns braying over this huge crowd. In terms of equipment, as I said, the Romans were pretty uniform, and so this would be quite the opposite. Each of those who considered themselves a warrior would likely have brought their own equipment. The Britons have often been characterised as fighting naked or, or shirtless. This is probably mostly not true. I think that relies on a, an image of the Britons as, as kind of stupid, because that seems like a very silly way to go into a fight. But they wouldn't have had, you know, the, the armour that the Romans had, that sort of thing. In fact, Celtic cultures are famous for their plaid cloth, so this crowd probably would have been really brightly coloured. Some of them would have worn chainmail armour, which did exist at the time. This has been found in archaeological sites. This was very high prestige, so only a few of them, only the richest of them. Um, there are these amazing helmets that we found. There's there's one in, on display on the British Museum you can go and see. Probably more for display than for use in battle, but with these great kind of bulbous horns sprouting into the air. These ones with kind of tall conical spikes on top. They would have been armed with a mixture of weaponry of spears and slings and bows and the things that you can just make quite quickly and swords as well. As I mentioned, the Iceni had been disarmed previously. It's quite possible that a lot of them would have had little in the way of equipment. But it seems likely that as a kind of warrior culture, they would have found ways to have weapons despite having been disarmed. It's quite possible and actually quite likely that many of them would have had Roman weapons, stuff taken from the defeated Ninth Legion, from, from stores that were found along the way. So a real hodgepodge of different stuff. It's been suggested that Britons and, and the Celtic culture more broadly um, was armed for a sort of ritual single combat. Diodorus even notes how, quote, it is their custom to come forward from the line of battle and challenge the noblest of their adversaries to single combat, end quote. So this is something from another kind of Homeric age. You know, as I said, this, this makes sense as, a, as a, a prestigious sort of warrior culture in which violence was a codified part of power struggles and of, of asserting prestige. It makes sense that, that actually you don't have these sort of mechanical, rationalised battlefields as in the Roman army. Instead, you have these highly significant single combats in which you prove yourself. And for this reason, they carried much longer swords. 
designed for a much more showy form of combat. Archaeological finds actually show that the, we have examples of these swords. Uh, there's one found in Ireland in a place called Ballyshannon with kind of complex tooled copper um, and alloys around its hilt, making it into this shape of a sort of warrior's head with his arms extended. Um, we've got the Battersea Shield, um, which is definitely ceremonial, but is this sheet of polished bronze covered in these swirling patterns and enameling and stuff. So this is very much the, the kind of door military professionals of the Roman legions lined up opposite a, a carnival of martial enthusiasm. Now, we know that Boudicca did bring war chariots along with her. The chariot, as we mentioned, with Boudicca's statue in Parliament Square, is this really key emblem of the Boudiccan revolt. The Romans were actually quite, quite surprised, apparently, by the British use of chariots. Um, it had fallen out of fashion in Gaul. Uh, Caesar commented on it at, at length as a kind of curiosity worth commenting on. He says, quote, In chariot fighting, the Britons begin by riding all over the field, hurling javelins, and generally the terror inspired by the horses and the noise of the wheels are sufficient to throw their opponents' ranks into disorder. They can run along the chariot pole, stand on the yoke, and get back into the chariot as quick as lightning, end quote. And there's a sense that this is a sort of ancient, a sort of virtuosic form of warfare. You know, we associate it with, with the pharaohs and with the Homeric heroes at the siege of Troy. Um, and it's a very stylish way to arrive into battle. He's, he's saying that actually the display and the noise and the dust created were a large part of their effect. It's not necessarily a practical weapon, but possibly a sort of terror weapon. Now, Tacitus goes on in his account. He says, quote, The legionaries were posted in serried ranks, the light-armed troops on either side, and the cavalry massed on the extreme wings. The British forces, on the other hand, disposed in bands of foot and horse, were moving jubilantly in every direction. They were in unprecedented numbers, and confidence ran so high that they brought their wives to witness the victory and installed them in wagons. So we can imagine the Romans in this tight formation at the bottleneck of this valley, shoulder to shoulder. They're probably at the top of a slope, it's been suggested, with woodland to either side and behind them, which keeps them safe from attack on their flanks. However, significantly, it also cuts off the possibility of escape. So this has become a kind of do or die. Importantly, though, the Britons are beginning to, to, to funnel in to this bottleneck in front of them. And their mass begins to bunch together in this wave of humanity. And... As Tacitus says, they've brought the non-combatants along with them. They've drawn up their carts and their wagons into a sort of crescent behind them, supposedly so that they can sort of watch this, this historic British victory. Now, Tacitus has Boudicca roll through the, the British horde in her chariot with her daughters at her feet, just as we see in this, this statue of her in London, and she gives a speech. She says, quote, Now she was avenging not as a queen of glorious ancestry, her ravished realm and power, but as a woman of the people her liberty lost, her body tortured by the lash, the tarnished honour of her daughters. Roman cupidity had progressed so far that not their very persons, not age itself, nor maidenhood, were left unpolluted. Yet heaven was on the side of their just revenge. One legion, which ventured into battle, had perished. The rest were skulking in their camps or looking around them for a way of escape. They would never face even the din and roar of those many thousands, far less their onslaught and their swords. If they considered in their own hearts the forces under arms and the motives of the war, on that field they must conquer or fall. Such was the settled purpose of a woman. The men might live and be slaves. End quote. And Tacitus puts these words into Paulinus' mouth. And it's kind of reminiscent of, of, of Henry V or something at Agincourt. Um, perhaps to build that same myth for the Romans, to build that legend. Paulinus, again, it's almost writing for posterity. Paulinus knows he's speaking possibly on the eve of a great success, which is going to rocket him into significance. Uh, he says, quote, Even in a number of legions, it was but a few men who decided the fate of battles. 
and it would be an additional glory that they, a handful of troops, were gathering the laurels of an entire army. Only keeping their order close, and when their javelins were discharged, employing shield boss and sword, let them steadily pile up the dead and forget the thought of plunder. Once the victory was gained, all would be their own. End quote. So again, this is a this is a sort of legend building, I suppose, on behalf of either Paulinus, if it's accurate speech, or of Tacitus, of in the end, you know, the, the of course the the rebellion being caused by this callous Roman imperialism, but in the end, the day being saved by this virtuous Roman stoicism. And the interesting thing here, I suppose, is that we we don't in our telling of this story, we don't see this in the same way. Obviously, Paulinus and the Romans are being projected as the underdogs in this situation. Now, after these rousing speeches, the the British host begins, seemingly without any order, without any direction from Boudicca, whipped up to anger by her speech, I suppose, to advance up the hill towards the Roman lines. Their chariots stream forward ahead of them, darting at the Romans, hurling insults, hurling missiles. You have to imagine the combined rumble of these wheels of of hundreds or thousands of chariots, the roar of 230,000 people, and this eerie braying call of the Carnics over the field. Now, both sides, of course, are exchanging missiles and insults and so forth, but they know that the, the deciding act is going to be a clash of, of troops on troops in, in close combat. As the Britons close to within, you know, probably a matter of, as I said, about 20, 30 yards, the legionaries launch their pila, these heavy throwing spears, and they have two each, and there's 7,000 of them, so that's possibly 14,000 of these heavy throwing spears hammering into the, the packed crowd of Britons, into the front ranks of them, and importantly, really taking the wind out of this famous Celtic onslaught. Now, Dio, uh, our, our second source, aptly narrates how the Roman legions engage in earnest to do what they have, you know, through long institutional memory of hundreds of years, learned how to do with, with brutal efficiency. He says, quote, Thereupon the armies approached each other, the barbarians with much shouting mingled with menacing battle songs, but the Romans silently and in order until they came within a javelin's throw of the enemy. Then, while their foes were still advancing against them, the Romans rushed forward at a signal and charged them at full speed, and when the clash came, easily broke through the opposing ranks. But as they were surrounded by the great numbers of the enemy, they had to be fighting everywhere at once. End quote. He's describing here, after the throwing of the, of the spears and the brief stumble in the, the charge of the Britons, this sort of short, sharp, weighted charge of the legionaries. They've thrown their peeler and then they throw themselves down upon their enemy. And I get the sense, he says silent and in order. You know, this isn't a sort of sword-waving, screaming charge, but a sort of surge, uh, perhaps just of a few paces, like a kind of battering ram, very purposeful. And remember, the legionaries are each wearing 15, 20 kilos of kit and armour. They're coated in metal. They're all men in the prime of their lives who spend all of their time marching and digging and training, and they're moving downhill as well. They have these massive shields with a, a big metal boss on the front of it. It's a very physical aspect of battle, but these things are all important. Now, Tacitus even includes in his speech from Paulinus, and this is this is the kind of military detail he might have actually got firsthand from his father-in-law, Agricola, that the legionaries are told by Paulinus before the battle, punch the enemy down with your shields, these shields weighing at least five kilos each, stab with the sword, the short stabbing gladius. And this was very much standard drill. Tells you all you need to know about the Romans. They had this standard drill for how to how to fight strike with the shield in the chest or the face, stab into the belly, and it's it's not flashy, it's not impressive, nobody's going to get famous from it, but it's coldly efficient. The shield stays in front of the body at all times, and with the shields of the men on the right and the left, you're kind of completely covered, and stabbing into the midriff doesn't take off somebody's head, but it comes in under their guard, and it takes them out of action just as surely. 
and I know this seems like a kind of glorying in the bloody details of these things, but but for me it gives it, it gives texture to this to this event, who these people are, what they experienced on a on a human level. If you've ever been in a scrum, if you've ever been in a mosh pit, it's something between those two, I imagine. But I think if we can transport ourselves at least a bit and come to understand somewhat what that human experience was like, perhaps we can get closer to understanding what this event is or what it means or any of those impossible to grapple questions. But as I said, a scrum or a mosh pit, a chaotic, terrifying, smelly human experience. We're not to imagine the. I mean, I'm saying this is all very coldly efficient. We're not. We don't need to imagine the Romans as these kind of robot terminators. They they were subject to fear. They were subject to panic and to chaos. As I said, to 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 Demos and Phobos, the the sons of Ares. But they just sort of set it up like a, a machine that perhaps didn't require great valor. It just required discipline. It's summed up in the role of the this guy called the Optio, uh, the centurion who would command about eighty men. I think um, would hand pick an Optio usually I would expect would be a kind of grizzled, experienced soldier. And the Optio had a big, great big staff and was placed at the rear of the formation and his job was just to shove men back into line, to brace them there. So the Romans hadn't done away with fear. They'd just, over several hundred years of constant wars, had worked out a way to manage it. Now the British problem was that they had funnelled upwards into this valley their numbers couldn't really be made to count. They, If we're to trust the sources, they, they outnumber the Romans like 20 to 1. But as I said, the Celtic way of war depended upon this incredibly ferocious kind of kinetic charge. As Dio characterises them, quote, much shouting mingled with menacing battle songs, end quote. And Tacitus says, much jubilant moving about. We've got this kind of great kinetic force of people and their first charge had to shock the enemy formation apart, to fracture it to create space for their their chariots and their horsemen to exploit and for them to use these long swords to engage in this kind of one-on-one virtuosic form of combat. Instead, their numbers, their very advantage, had squeezed them together, had pushed them into this bottleneck. And then the Roman charge actually served to press them together yet further, created pressure from the front as the you know, 200,000 other odd people are pushing them from behind. So instead of being in these one-on-one virtuosic fights that all of them have trained for, that all of them, that the most elite among them probably relish as a form of proving themselves, instead they find themselves a mass fighting another mass. And that's what the Romans do best. They cannot use their sword arms, they can't get their swords out. And the legionary fighting style actually benefits from this pressure, this added weight. If all you've got to do is stab with this little spiky bit of metal, having pressure behind you just adds weight onto this thrust. And no matter how strong you are, no matter how good you are at fighting, no matter how motivated you are, if your arms are, are pinned to your side by the person next to you, there's nothing you can do. And I was try- I mean, I'm trying to imagine what that possibly be like. I don't necessarily want to entirely transport myself there. But the closest I could come to actually is that feeling when you're, you know, as a kid, when you would play some stupid game like a pillow fight or something like that and inevitably somebody would end up under a duvet or somebody would end up with everyone else jumping on top of them or something and as much as it's in that very childish way incredibly elating and exciting and and sort of martial I suppose in in the context of a pillow fight it goes in in a flash from that elation from that excitement to utter panic that feeling when you can't breathe when you're being squashed by a load of your mates and somebody just starts screaming and it all very quickly kind of suddenly changes. Or that even worse moment when it doesn't quick, doesn't change because everyone else is screaming as well. And as flippant as that might seem, that that's, that's probably the closest I've experienced. 
Now, a possible extra contributor, if we're going to talk about kind of what, why the outcome happened as it did, and we'll get to what the outcome was, is the actual demographic makeup of these armies. This is just an idea to play with. This kind of popped into my head. I, I might be totally wrong, but I remember reading somewhere this possibly erroneous statistic of about 90% of casualties in the First World War being caused by 10% of combatants. That sounds like exactly the kind of thing that you can't prove, but it also sounds kind of plausible in some sense. There's perhaps a kind of grain of truth in there. And the idea is that we're fundamentally divided into killers and not killers, and the killers are by far in the minority. Now, the, the army of the Britons, by its very virtue of coming from a warrior culture, was a cross-section of society. You know, if, if a percentage of us are not killers, if that's 90% or 80% or whatever, but our culture means we're all up for military service, I wonder if that means you necessarily end up with a proportion of, of non-killers in your ranks. On the other hand, since the Marian reforms, as I said, that the Roman army was professional and it was full-time. And I'm sure there are lots of reasons people end up in the, as legionaries, but to some extent that must have meant that a degree of self-selection took place. Basically, you, you skim off all of those inclined or, or capable of killing and you put them all in one place. And it's, I mean, this is a bit speculative, but I guess those demographic forces do have, have hidden ways of making themselves felt. Now, at some point in this crush, the, the sons of Ares, Phobos and Deimos, take charge. And this pressed mass of British warriors begins to disintegrate into a, into a fleeing crowd. As Tacitus says, quote, The remainder took to flight, although escape was difficult, as the cordon of wagons had blocked the outlets. The troops gave no quarter even to the women. The baggage animals themselves had been speared and added to the pile of bodies, end quote. So this crowd, this panicked you know, we're into stampede territory now, um, you know, the grimmest form of the, the image I started with this with of the, the festival or the football crowd. This mass of humanity pressed against these wagons, which are weighted down with food and with families and with the loot they've taken from Colchester and, and Londinium and St Albans. Nick Field says, quote, the women watching from atop the vehicles would have witnessed the merciless maelstrom disgorging down the hill. Father, uncle, husband, brother, nephew, child, all alike were borne away on the tide of metal. Their menfolk quickly found that the makeshift grandstand afforded by the vehicles was no more than a deadly trap that they had set for themselves, end quote. Now, the poignance of that is kind of obvious. You can see why Tacitus includes it. It's, it's a, there's a classic sort of Greek tragic hubris going on there that they've made this kind of grandstand of wagons in order to, to witness their great victory. And it's the thing that causes their downfall and their slaughter. And it's easy, I think, to fall into the trap of taking Tacitus you know, objective narration of an event that makes sense, the incidental, the tragic slaughter caused by the wagons being brought up to the battlefield as objective fact, because it does make sense. It reads to us if we just listen to it without thinking about it. But there's, a, there's an obviously implied message there, as I said, that bringing, well, the hubris of it, but also that bringing women to the battlefield in the form of Boudicca or in the form of the wives and the mothers and the children is folly and will directly bring about your much-deserved downfall. And that's right in line with his chauvinist sort of Roman perspective. Now, if instead we assume these wagons are just pulled up, you know, it's just as likely that this was because this was a citizen army, one that had to bring its old and its young and its sick along with it, as well as food and, and loot and plunder and the stuff they stole. So Tastus turns this quite, possibly quite parochial detail, just a practicality really, um, into this moralising message, illustrating the, the hubris of these barbarians. In any case, the result, um, as reported by Tacitus, was 80,000 British dead on that day alone, and Boudicca's army was completely scattered. Nick Fields has an excellent turn of phrase on this. He says, quote, The truth of things always lay in the contradiction, 
As the cup brimmed, so it spilled. Its own size and splendour had marked the British host for total destruction. End quote. It was the sheer, the number of people, the crush of people, their, their verve, their momentum, at the moment of their triumph, that had squashed them forwards onto the coldly calculated Roman talent for violence. The Romans supposedly suffered only 400 dead and the same number wounded. Now, the day had two other victims, contrasting slightly. Tacitus narrates the end of Poenius Posthumus, who's commander of the Second Legion, that legion which Paulinus had requested down from Exeter, but which had failed to come. Quote, Poenius Posthumus, camp prefect of the Second Legion, informed of the exploits of the men of the 14th and 20th, and conscious that he had cheated his own corps of a share in the honours, and had violated the rules of the service by ignoring the orders of his commander, ran his sword through his body. End quote. And finally, of course, we have Boudicca. Tacitus ends her days with his, his classic economy of words. Quote, Boudicca ended her days by poison. End quote. Now, this, this innocuous end in itself is the final bullet point of Tacitus's message. We have two suicides marking the end of this story. Posthumus, who takes his own life in this admirably stoic Roman way. He runs himself through with his sword. Boudicca, on the other hand, despite her fierceness, once her purely, her emotional energy has been exhausted, once her failure has become clear, she takes the cowardly, feminine way out, poison. And Tastus purposely places these two deaths in consecutive sentences for comparison. However, despite the more noble death that he has afforded, Poenius Posthumus has faded from our memories. But as we will discover in the next episode, this was only the beginning of Boudicca, or indeed Boadicea's story. Thank you very much for the diehards among you that have stuck out all the way to the end of the closing credits. You've just listened to the penultimate in the second season of Pedestals on Boudicca's Revolt. Uh, we will have one more episode coming out sometime in the future. Uh, if in the meantime you would like to support the podcast, everything I do is purely voluntary at this point. I don't get any other sort of recompense for it. Anything you can do to cover uh, any of my various expenses would be very much appreciated. The easiest way for you to do that is at www.patreon.com forward slash pedestals. Uh, the www I've, I've been told is is not necessary anymore, but uh, you can add it in for fun. I'd also just like to thank, of course, firstly, all of yourselves for tuning in, um, but moreover, the wonderful Fiona Wilson and Brendan O'Rourke for their help with our cover image. Pedestals was written and narrated by me, Peter Dewhurst. Until next time.